Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science here on 3RRR. We've got some great guests waiting out in the green room, and in the studio with me is Dr. Sarah Best. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Shane. It's great to have you back. It's always lovely to be here. Yeah, you were flying around for a while there, weren't you, I think? Look, there's been a bit of travel. Yeah. Some of it was holiday, but a lot of it was work. <laughs> what was the best workplace you went to? I went to the Telethon Kids Institute in oh, Perth, Perth, and I haven't yeah. been there before. It was it was really fantastic. Yeah, I've got. I think I've got an application for my kids' cancer charity with those people. They're wonderful. Hint, hint. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah, they do some great work over there. Yeah. So um, there's some good things happening in Perth. Mm, interesting. I'm getting over to Perth in November. So um, hopefully there won't be a giant heat wave given the temperature at the moment. But, uh, good luck. Yeah. Chris KP, good morning. Hello. How are you? It's good to see you, pal. Yes, likewise, likewise. What a glorious uh, day to be inside a studio. <laughs> yeah. I sit in a little downdraft here. Uh, the middle of the studio It's where the oh, air, you've got, air oh, yes, ventilation too, yes. and the HEPA filters kind of, it's a perfect mix so mm. that it keeps all of your stuff away mm. from me, but it freezes me slightly. You know, I often yes. feel a bit cold here, but uh, it's, uh, you know, I feel safe. <laughs> and uh, on the line is Gracie from Texas. Hey, Gracie, how you going? Yes, howdy, how are y'all? <laughs> you always tell us where you're from by saying that. Yep. <laughs> and then we're going to start the show with you, Gracie. You're going to tell us about some cool stuff today. What What's the topic? Yes, so today we're going to talk about microplastics. Uh-oh. Um, so we're going to talk about, uh, yes, the uh-oh part, and then we're also going to talk about some really innovative ways that people have been, uh, you know, studying how to better recycle these plastics so that we have less of this problem in the future. Mm. So first good. we'll start with, yes, so first we'll start with what are even microplastics. So they're really tiny pieces of plastic, just like they sound. Uh, less than five millimeters um, is typically the classification for a technical microplastic particle. Um, so there's primary microplastics and there are secondary microplastics. So the primary microplastics are kind of what you think about in terms of, you know, microfibers from clothing, um, cosmetics, um, and then secondary microplastics are basically uh, microplastics that have resulted from the breakdown of a larger plastic item. So something like a water bottle, a straw, a plastic bag. Um, and the breakdown is usually caused by some sort of exposure to like an environmental factor. Um, and so these plastic items, really of any size, they don't readily break down into harmless molecules, right? Um, so plastics can take hundreds or even thousands of years sometimes to decompose, which can obviously really wreak havoc on, you know, our environment and even potentially on our bodies. Um, and so uh, basically microplastics have been found in humans uh, as well. And so they've been found, you know, in our, in our food, in our water, in our air. Um, and it's estimated that uh, food intake results in the consumption of about 52,000 pieces of microplastic fragments per person per year. So uh, that's a ton. That's, uh, that doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't. Yeah. 
No, it doesn't. And yeah, and microplastics um, are uh, so bad also because they can also absorb undesirable chemicals um, and pesticides from the environment. Um, but there actually have been no longitudinal studies up to this point to you know, uh, kind of uh, provide us with evidence of what these microplastics are actually doing to our bodies. Um, because they've really only been in widespread use since about the 1950s. There have been really few studies on the long-term effects of microplastics. And even those few studies have been uh, in occupational settings where workers are exposed to like really high amounts, right? So so something um, that wouldn't necessarily be like the, the average uh, person's exposure to microplastics. Um, however, there's... Yeah, I was just going to say it's so interesting what you say there because like we've got we've got two things there that you mentioned. One is that they don't break down well, which in a sense for me is is great because if it's not breaking down in my body, maybe it'll affect my body less. But then you also said that they carry other sorts of chemicals mm. with them, which presumably my body would strip off the microplastics really quickly, and that's a Trojan horse I don't want to know about. So there's there's a lot of bad and then there might just be the accumulation of these materials in my kidneys or my liver or you know because my body can't break them down so yeah right right exactly and uh right now there are currently no regulatory exposure limits for microplastics um and so that's a really main uh factor as well um and as the innovations for plastics uh become more biodegradable uh the problem is actually that, you know, whenever you think of a landfill, um, how much of that plastic in that landfill actually has an opportunity to biodegrade, mm. right? Uh, because if it's all just kind of sitting there in a pile, just because it, it might be biodegradable uh, to some level doesn't necessarily mean that it has the opportunity to biodegrade. Yeah, I suppose you need a catalyst of some type in those cases, don't you? In some, and that might be sunlight or it might be water or it might be, you know, whatever else. Without that, they don't do anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that actually is a perfect segue into some of the innovations that people have been creating, too. Um, so there's actually a new process that involves um, basically embedding uh, these polyester eating enzymes into the plastic as it's being made. Um, so the plastic is actually made with these enzymes and then something, um, you know, really dramatic can activate it, like an intense amount of heat um, or water. Um, but uh, the way that they make it is that basically this enzyme has a coating so that if it's if the plastic is exposed to some amount of heat or water or whatever would make it degrade, it doesn't necessarily degrade until it is very intentionally exposed to those things yeah, to make it degrade. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and uh, some researchers have found that uh, using that process, up to 98% of the plastic is actually uh, biodegraded, which is amazing. Um, and then there was actually a study in 2016 um, that discovered a bacterium living in a waste dump in Japan uh, that can actually break down and consume polyethylene um, terephthalate, which is one of the world's most problematic plastic pollutants just because it takes so long to break down. And there's actually so much of it um, in just everyday things like single use drinking bottles clothing carpets um so that's uh one of the big ones as well yeah and have we uh, worked out how to harness this bacteria <laughs> yes yes so they're working on it now they they haven't uh come up with a conclusive uh product yet but they're they're working on it and actually uh those same researchers um in 2018 they were actually trying to look at the structure of that enzyme and interestingly enough they inadvertently found an enzyme that was actually even better than that one than <laughs> breaking down the plastic so they're still working on it um but actually that enzyme can digest plastic up to six times faster than the original one that they found wow. so it just kind of continues to progress yeah. 
Um, and then, of course, there are some different materials um, that these plastics can just be made with, you know, from this point moving forward altogether. Um, and so there have been people that have engineered, you know, cell uh, microbeads. Um, so microbeads are found in a lot of um, like cosmetics or like uh, shampoos. They're kind of like these little plastic beads that you may feel, you know, is like an, if you're using like an exfoliator on your face uh, or maybe in your shampoo. Um, and so somebody has actually engineered a way to make these out of plants plant material. And so they very naturally biodegrade. Um, there are also different researchers that have used plastics so sugar-based plastic, um, and then also uh, plastics from paper. Uh, there's also a company uh, that has used seaweed, interestingly enough. Uh, that's my favorite one so far. So uh, this was actually engineered in 2019. Um, and these seaweed pouches were actually handed out to runners in the London Marathon. Um, instead of hundreds of thousands of plastic bottles to Is waste. Is that right? Mm. So little seaweed yeah. cups. Or yes, seaweed exactly. Containers. Yeah. Nice. Yes, yeah. Um, so that's a company actually in the UK that actually makes those. And then there's also been some other innovative startups and companies in the UK that have um, used food packaging from like wood and plants. Um, that way mm. they can actually uh, kind of actively break down a little bit faster. Well, we're getting there. We're making some progress. It sounds like it, Gracie is, you know, slow but sure. I, I saw some footage the other day of one of these, um, one of these boats that goes out and scoops up all the plastic in the ocean. You see them unloading the big um, mm-hmm. fish netting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a, a netting trawler yeah, thing, scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, where um, and then they dump all the plastic. It looked like there was TVs and microwaves and God yeah. knows what else that had been dumped into the ocean. So like, yeah, this stuff, especially the microplastics. So we can't even see half of it. That's the scary part. Right, exactly. Yes. Hmm. Um, So there is actually one more uh, innovation that I have to talk about. So some people are actually using plastics uh, to be basically converted into jet fuel. Um, So this study was actually done uh, in 2021. Um, However, there have been some people, uh, some other researchers that have also pointed out that the same type of technology has been uh, like attempted to be used for this process since like the 1950s, but it just hasn't worked out yet um, simply because it requires uh, a lot of hydrogen pressure. Um, Basically, uh, this type of technology is called pyrolysis technology. So it's using heat to break down the plastic polymers um, into smaller chains. And then those can be cooled in order to form like oils and waxes um, and different types of gases like propane and ethane. Um, So it sounds great, right? Except that uh, it requires a lot of energy, um, requires a lot of hydrogen pressure. Um, it kind of reduces any green benefits uh, by, the, by uh, basically if you consider how much energy it takes to actually convert uh, the plastic into jet fuel, it ends up becoming not worth it. But the researchers are still trying to find a way to make it more energy efficient in order to make it more green overall yeah. uh, for the environment. So, mm. well, Gracie- But then to use it for jet fuel. So yeah, yeah, well, that, that could be a problem itself. A yeah. The- <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, well, you know, I think uh, I think we just need to shoot this stuff into the sun. That's right. What I was is, that, say. is that yeah? Chris KP, so you use you use the uh, the jet, jet fuel you've made. It, it's still it's still economically <laughs> net loss, but it's worth it, right? Yeah, yeah. Just shoot all the plastic that we've made into the sun. What you're doing by doing that is you're actually losing biomass, essentially. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's the price we should pay, I think. Yeah, we need to pay a price. There's no doubt about that. Gracie, thanks so much for all that. I'm not sure I'm excited or uh, or not yet. You know, I'm going to have to think about that for a while. But at least at least we're sort of starting to head in the right direction, especially with some of the 
the, the truly biodegradable polymers that are you know coming out and, and the possibility that over time we'll exchange across to those which would be amazing so we're going to let you go have a good saturday evening over there in texas i hope there's no cyclones uh, other floods or idiot you know there, there seems to be just stuff all over the northern hemisphere at the moment just tearing the place apart so i hope you're safe there in in texas yes i am safe thank you for asking yes <laughs> very thank good. you all all right take care gracie we'll chat again soon yes sounds good bye everyone Bye. Yeah. There we go. Uh, plastics. Jeez. Every time I hear about them getting in your kidneys and that, I freak out. I don't know why. It's a bit disconcerting. It's very disconcerting. Very disconcerting. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with Alice Terrell from Monash University about uh, antibiotic resistance, which is a, a, another scary topic, but I think there's some good stuff happening there. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. It is 11.14, which means it's time for our first guest today. We have Alice Terrell from Monash University in the studio. Uh, welcome, Alice. Hello. It's a pr- pleasure to be here. It's great to have you there. You were part of our 20 and 20 group earlier in the year, but you were in the... Mm-hmm what I call the non-physical presence group. So we, we had you, I think you're in camp, yeah. you're in Canberra online or something. Yeah, you? I was in Canberra and zooming in yeah. to do the show. Yeah. So how'd you find it? You had a whole minute. Oh, it felt like two seconds. <laughs> <Yeah>. but... <laughs> well, and, and you agreed to come back, which is uh, it's always nice Yes, for us. it can't have been, can't have been too bad. Can't have been too bad. Uh, now, you, you work in um, the area of antibiotic resistance and we, we've, we've heard a lot about this uh, on the show, I think. But um, just just before we dive into your actual work, I mean, what's happening in terms of resistance from you know to to antibiotics from bugs? I mean, what what are they doing? Yeah. So when antibiotics were found about a hundred years ago, they were this incredible solution to all of these different diseases and illnesses. And what's happened over time is the the bugs, the bacteria, have essentially gotten smarter in a way. They've developed these mechanisms to overcome the antibiotics. So the yep. antibiotics are still reaching the the bacteria, but the bacteria is defending itself essentially, right. and so they're not the treatment's not working as well as they used to. So, to, talk me through how this would work. If I if I had a let's say I had a big vat <laughs> filled yep. with bacteria, and I start pumping antibiotics into it. How does the process of adaptation there work so that they're resistant? Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of this in terms of the human body, you know, like, how is it that some of them are getting killed off, but then suddenly, is it just like genetic mutations or like, what's going on? Yeah, there's a few different ways it can occur, but it is generally what we find is some bacteria have inherent resistance and it's just sort of floating around. And then what happens is when you have your vat of bacteria... Yep, yep. Most of them might be susceptible, but there'll be a few that are resistant in there. And so when you pour in your antibiotic, it might kill most of the bacteria, but then the ones that are resistant, they keep growing. And because that um, resistance mechanism that they have is now important, it's not just sort of hanging out, it's actually keeping them alive, um, that can usually be upregulated or sometimes you'll get what we call horizontal gene transfer. And so they can actually pass their resistance over to other bacteria that don't have it and right. share it. Um, and so that's how that resistance sort of starts to spread. Yeah. And so over time, I assume that means, 
you know, in that vat as the vat, you know, Harvard, <laughs> sorry, vat, vat technology, you know, it's very, very important. But, you know, then, then that group of bacteria that made it through the first time, they will reproduce again. And slowly but surely that resistance, I assume, because it's an evolutionary advantage at that point, mm. gets better and better and better to the point where you throw in your um, antibiotic and, and, you know, Chris KP's holding the vat, but it's just nothing happens. <laughs> no. Is that, is that, that's, that's the basics of it, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. And so then when you have patients who are prone to recurrent infections, say yep. like someone with cystic fibrosis, that's essentially what's happening. And you can keep throwing these antibiotics at them, but they become less and less effective at treating the infections. Yeah. So another question for you. Why, when you go to the GP sometimes, they will say, make sure you finish your course of antibiotics. What, what's that part about? Yeah, well, that's really interesting you bring it up because there's actually new research that's potentially contesting that. Oh! oh. So do what your doctor tells you to do. And most of the time, <laughs> I never do. <laughs> most of the time, the doctor will still say, finish the course of antibiotics. Okay. Yep. Sometimes though, they might not. Sometimes right. they might say, take however many days worth or whatever right. it is. So do what your doctor says. So they'll give you, then. so you're saying that they, they'll give you a full course, but sometimes you don't take the full course. Potentially, yeah. And that's just because of when you go to the pharmacy and how the pharmacy packages them. Yeah. Okay. 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 I, yeah. I always wonder yeah. about that because, you know, like, you know, I'm nervous, so it's guy, I ask questions. But, you know, you get one type of antibiotic, you know, and that's for your, your, your mm-hmm. you know, like Sarah was telling me about her fungal infection on her feet earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, but, you know, you have one type of bacteria that requires this antibiotic and there are, you know, three tablets for seven days. And then you get another one that's one ginormous yeah, horse yeah, pill yeah. for four days or five days. Mm. And I've always thought, you know, how is that happening? Like, why is there a difference in the sort of that, that time range that's yeah. so significant? Well, that comes down a lot of the time to the type of antibiotics. So there's different classes of antibiotics and the way that they need to be dosed to be the most effective is different. Right. So for some of them, it's really important to be reaching a certain concentration and maintaining it. For others, you just need to get a really high peak concentration and then it can drop off and... So it depends, and that's why you get those differences. No, no doctor has explained this to me. Like, I would just say, yep, gotcha. Horse pill, I'm good to go. I think next time you get a doctor, you can explain it to them. Uh, that's, everybody wins. Yeah, I probably should be asking my pharmacist. That's the, that's, you know, that's the drug expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chris, yeah. So, the, uh, so in, the, in the battle to deal with uh, increasing antibiotic resistance, do we focus our attention on new drugs, or do we focus our attention on using drugs differently, or do we focus our attention on the bacteria? All of them. Oh, um, no, I'm sorry. Tired already. <laughs> the work that I'm doing is how we are using existing antibiotics. So that's what I'm focusing on. But there is on. research. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so. yeah. Tell us. What, what else? What you, forget the other stuff, Chris did, because yeah. we don't care about that. Yeah. Uh, what, Unless you want to. Yeah. Which, which, version no, no. Are you, which version are you tackling? Yeah. So I'm looking at how, how do we use what we have already. So... Like I said, what we know is that sometimes whether we hit a certain concentration or whether we can maintain it, that matters. But what we're finding more and more is those, um, we call them indices, that we want to reach and those guidelines are not really telling the full story. So we have them and we've been using them to make sure we hopefully kill the bacteria, but they're not working very well anymore. So what I'm trying to look at is other ways to explain how we can dose our antibiotics basically and make sure that 
they're going to kill the bacteria. Yeah, interesting. So one of the things I, I you know, I have a, a family member with diabetes, and one of the things that's fascinated me over the decades is, and we're just starting to do it now, is that, you know, there isn't a monitoring system that a person has with diabetes that gives them insulin as their own pancreas would do, you know, when needed. Mm-hmm. Instead, you have these whacks and, you know, they, their sugar levels are up and, and down and, you know, they feel terrible and so forth. And I think there's some systems now where they're starting to do that, some tech companies starting to put that sort of stuff out, mm-hmm. which is really cool. But I assume that in similar ways it's uh, the same with antibiotics where you, you really need to be able to change concentrations and dose over time, not just have the same, like, you know, when I get that pack from the <laughs> pharmacy, it's the exact same dose every single day, whether yeah. I'm really sick or almost well. Is that is that where we need to head? Eventually, the focus at the moment is more when you've got patients who are in the ICU. So yep. when you're sick, it's uncomfortable and, like, not yeah, much yeah, fun, but, okay. but yeah. you're going to be okay. Yeah. When you have patients in the ICU, if you don't treat their infections yeah, properly, yeah, they'll die. There's, yeah, yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll die. Mm. Um, so... With them, because they're usually being dosed via IV, so that we've got the antibiotic going straight into their bloodstream, mm. we have the ability to have quite nuanced control right. over the dosing and that you know the peaks and troughs or the steady state, whatever we want it to look like. We we can do that, so we have the ability to do that. It's making sure that we're using that efficiently and and actually using it to its best potential. Yeah. So how do you test that in real time? Like how do you, how do you monitor <laughs> the, the bacterial levels, I suppose, or is it the person's temperature or like whatever sort of secondary sort of monitoring system you might use to make sure you know what and when with the antibiotics? So it's, it's complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that I do it, so I don't work with patients. I work with test tubes and in a lab with those sorts of systems. So, But we have these systems and they hold the bacteria like an infection and we pass through our um, antibiotics going in and out and we have um, this stuff that the bacteria can grow in uh, and that flows in and out as well. So it's sort of acting like a circulatory system for the person. Um, So we sit there and we test the concentration of the antibiotic and then we can also test how much bug we have, how much bacteria is growing and we can do that over a time course so that we can then take that and understand how much bacteria there was versus how much antibiotic we were giving. Yeah. I assume there's a real non-linear aspect to this too, right? I mean, oh, the, yeah. you know, I mean this is one of the things you kind of think about, oh, you know, I just keep giving antibiotics and the, the, the stuff. See, I told you it was a vet. You, yeah. you, you were laughing at me, but no, it's no, basically no, little bats. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it keeps going down. But I, I assume there's sort of like thresholds and that you go through and, and periods where, you know, you have a sudden die-off, but then there's these little buggers that just hang on at the end. Is that, yeah. is that what you're still seeing? Yeah. So generally, if the treatment starts to work but doesn't work, you see that really sudden killing, but mm. then slowly the bacteria might start to regrow. And right. those, like we said at the start, when we're talking about the vat, those few that are resistant and then they slowly start to grow back. Yeah. Uh, But then the other really important consideration, you know, you're talking about that nonlinear relationship, is we can't – for us, it's easy. We're testing in a test tube. We can whack whatever concentration of antibiotics we want in. In a human, you can't do that that, because – you're going to have big yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting to me. The, the other thing I've, I've never really understood is, you know, you're over at the Alfred. You know, sorry, Alfred, not picking you out, but you're over at the Alfred and there's a, a bacteria that's resistant. You know, I mean, most yeah. hospitals have this at this stage. How does that one, you know, end up over at the Royal Melbourne? Like, you know, how, how, how is it that these, these, the ability to resist certain antibiotics is moving mm. around the world or is it independently being developed everywhere at the same time 
I, th- I think it's a bit of both. I think um, because of we have this huge problem where all of our bacteria are being exposed to antibiotics. Like antibiotics are used in food production yeah. um, and, you know, in our livestock and things like that. Um, and even in water when you're growing right. – yep. not growing, but you've got fish farms and yep. things like that. Yep. So um, the exposure and the opportunity to develop resistance yeah. is really prevalent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good, that's tough. I think um, when you look at your sort of your work there, where you're cha- you know you're, you're really controlling dose and so forth, mm. what sort of I'm not sure I want to know the answer to this, but what <laughs> what sort of benefits are you seeing? Are you seeing like a thirty percent improvement in the way that antibiotic works, or a point one percent improvement? Is this is this sort of you know how how big is that change? Oh, there's potential to be huge change. So one of the things we see fairly commonly is if you have an antibiotic by itself Mm. and you give it you do you get that killing and then the bacteria regrows as they are resistant but if we take two antibiotics and they both have that pattern and give them at the same time they'll kill the bacteria and the bacteria won't regrow right so there's huge potential there and there is that is really significant does the so we know that um when you take antibiotics you can have an impact on your own microbiota mm. is that part of the consideration too I mean, i'm just wondering at what point do we sort of go out can we back off and let ourselves recover a bit or you know because it's a dynamic system it's it's complex yeah, yeah. um that's a really interesting point because there's it can take you after one course of antibiotics that you or i would take it takes your gut a year to recover seriously oh, wow. yeah it's huge it's huge okay. impacts um yeah. that said like i said with the patients that we're working with they're commonly in the icu Right. It's it's yeah. treat this nice. infection or they yeah. die. Yeah. yeah so totally. if their gut's a bit upset, <laughs> we'll suck it up. <laughs> yeah. I'm but okay with it, that. it brings that into question, you know, if you're going yeah. to the GP, do you need the antibiotics? And sometimes you do. Sometimes yeah, you absolutely sure. do, but yeah. sometimes you probably don't as well. Now, there's been a lot of talk, Alice, over the last, uh, yeah, probably over the last decade about, you know, over-prescription mm. of antibiotics and so forth. One of the things I wanted to ask you, though, is how much is this problem coming from that part of our, our society and how much of it is coming from farming, food production, you know, other things? Because it seems to me like when you, when you talk about how widespread antibiotics are used, I get that everything I'm buying off the, the shelf that <laughs> is basically, you know, fresh produce of some type has been exposed to to these chemicals but not everyone i come across you know in society has had a course of antibiotics in the last six months and in fact that prevalence is probably quite low so do we have a feel for where the problem is sort of really coming from as opposed to where we're talking about a lot yeah that's a really fantastic question and i think i think it's so multifaceted i don't think you can pinpoint it and blame it on one Mm. area and say it is farming or it is over prescription i think it is just it's just how things are at the moment and it's a lot of it sits with regulation and policy on how antibiotics are allowed to be used uh, in food production but also how they're used when you go to the doctors and they're prescribed it's i think it's a bit of both yeah well look hopefully your work will give us a a better understanding and understand like a lot of this is going to be done with simulations and so forth as well because Mm. like this as you say these are complex systems right yeah you're doing a lot of computer coding in your uh in your work i sure am (laughs) (laughs) oh boy because that must be like quite complicated systems to model uh, when you talk especially as soon as like Mm. you know if 
I don't know, maybe in your first year, you're like, here's one bacteria, here's one antibiotic. Go nuts, have fun, code some stuff. And then someone said to you, here's two antibiotics. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's actually really exciting. At the moment, what I'm working on is called a next generation model. And so that we um, are coding for seven strains of bacteria at the same time, which is really exciting because Mm. normally you you only do one at a time. Adding different antibiotics... That's not too hard. It can be done. The bacterial strains is the, the hard right. one. Huh. But it's really cool at the moment. I've got these strains that I'm working with, and they're not from patients. They've been designed in a lab, but they're all exactly the same except for one mutation in oh, each okay. of them. Right. So then in this model, I can sit there and be like, well, this is the one genetic difference that this strain has from the others. So the difference in the effect that the antibiotics can have on it is caused by that one mutation. Wow. Um, so that's really exciting and really cool. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. So when you model the, all these different parameters, how well does it actually work out when you test it then in the test tubes? Yeah, it, it's, it's fairly good. <laughs> <laughs> it's an iterative process. It's a technical <laughs> term, folks. It's fairly good. <laughs> it's a, it's a, <laughs> It's about collecting enough data from the test tubes to be able to design this model because you need data to design the model, um, but then, yeah, being able to apply that to new data. Mm. And we we can do it, and it, it is working. So it's, it's really exciting and really cool. It's wild stuff. And so then can you apply something like AI or machine learning to Im- completely improve your model every time you get new data back, or is that kind of like 10 steps down the line? It's a really fantastic question, and... Um, I'm actually meeting with a potential collaborator on Tuesday to talk about how we can use AI. <laughs> so, You're meeting with a bot, right? <laughs> no real person, I can confirm. <laughs> oh, okay. their, their first name is GPT. <laughs> Second name, chat. Yeah. Uh, Alice, look, it's, it's amazing stuff. It's so cool to hear about all your work. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I so want to know, do the bacteria help each other out in any way like other species do on the planet? Like, is, is there any, before you go, is there any kind of symbiotic... Aspects of these bacteria, where you know they they actually support each other in these systems in any way. Oh, absolutely! Because it... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say no way. Well, aside, you know, like I said earlier, they've got that horizontal gene transfer. Yeah. But what we actually find as well is when you get groups of them, some bacteria can form what we call a biofilm. So they all kind of group together and like oh, have this film that's holding them, and it makes it harder for us to get drugs in and <laughs> the immune system. So. I'm sorry that's not the positive answer yeah. you want. But it is cool, though. They are. Yeah, yeah it, is, it cool. is really cool. And, you know, there's new technology, and now we're able to, like, simulate these biofilms so we can test how to treat them. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's all oh, exciting. Look, it's awesome stuff. Alice Terrell, uh, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us again on Einstein and Go Go. We definitely needed more than a minute to go through your stuff. <laughs> thanks so much for chatting. No, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Folks, we're going to take a break for some tunes, and when we come back, uh, much to the fear of Chris KP and myself, we are bringing a school teacher in. We're gonna get we're gonna get schooled, Chris. We're gonna get schooled. That's high time I was. Yeah, it's gonna be hard. Triple R. Good content. Correct. Coming up. Uh, 
uh, we have in the studio with us now Rebecca Russell Saunders. Rebecca is a secondary school teacher currently at Wesley. How are you going, Beck? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's great to have. Now we met on Twitter. We did back we in did. the back in the day. I think when I was har- harassing the state government to support teachers. <laughs> oh, I was there with you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the battle continues. Uh, we'll keep doing that. But, but you're a science teacher, of course. I am. Yeah, and one of the reasons I saw your tweets is you're always putting up pictures of experiments and things that you do in class. And it's you're in biology, chemistry? Biology is what I teach VCE and IB, and then I teach Year 10 this year. So that's where the chemistry comes in and a bit of physics. A bit of physics, yeah. yeah. I try my best with physics. Oh, that's right. I dropped biology in year 11. <gasps> yeah, couldn't hack it. It's a hard subject. It's a really hard subject. It's, yeah, no. So, but you did physics? Yeah, I did physics and maths. So physics, maths, chemistry, uh, yeah, that was a bit of a stretch because I, you know, I'm not a big one for chemistry, but uh, but you had to do a fourth subject. So, you know, um, yeah. I did it. But yeah. How do you convince people to do biology? Oh, that's a good one. Most, I think most of the students I get love genetics. Genetics is the right. big one, you know, a Punnett square wow. and a pedigree. <laughs> Who'd have thought? But they all love the genetics, and I think yeah. that's because they sort of sit there and they're like, oh, and they're looking for their, you know, the yeah. widow's peak, and do I have hairy knuckles, and <laughs> all those sorts of things. So that gets them in, and then we hit them straight up with photosynthesis and cellular respiration, and they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> See, I didn't. We didn't have. I, this shows my age, but we didn't have a lot of genetics when I was when it was put to me. And I remember my year eleven biology teacher gave us this assignment. We had to go and find a, a eucalypt tree. We had to classify it, right? Mm. And I remember driving all the way out to the Yuyangs in, in Western Melbourne with my dad, and grabbed this bit of branch had fallen down. I probably ripped it off, but anyway, yeah, I grabbed this bit of fallen down branch, brought it back in, classified it, and to my other amazement, it was the exact same one that they held at the botanical gardens that was labelled, and that one wasn't allowed. <gasps> <laughs> and I was like, what? Huh. <laughs> this is outrageous. Yeah. That was what lost me. I was going to say, that yeah. was probably the beginning of the end, yeah. right? <laughs> I was gone. I was gone. That and the, and the rat dissection in year 10, I was like, seriously, oh, I people. I love that. I was very good you at know, that. Just give me a goddamn x-ray or an ultrasound. Many surgical careers finish on dissection day. <laughs> Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, we did our heart recently with my IB year 11 class and, yeah, some surgical careers finished and we've got a rat coming up in a couple of weeks when we come back for term four. So some are very excited and some are not too excited yeah. about it. So, Vic, tell me how, how it works in the school system. So when, when someone, you know, in some lofty tower somewhere, and I'm, I'm picturing, you know, Lord of the Rings here, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they decide... This needs to go into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. How does that flow down through to the teachers and then eventually the students? I mean, does someone just, you know, send, do you just get an alert that says, hey, guess what? Uh, genetics, go. And then all of a sudden you've got to work it out. What, what does that look like? Well, so for VCE, uh, last year we started the new um, study design for the new VCE course. So that's sort of it's years in the iteration. And so I would say sometimes what we're teaching in the class is a bit behind sort of where science is per se so we get a couple of years notification that the new study design is coming out Um, they will put it together so VCAR and their curriculum experts put the syllabus or the study design together then it goes out to the teachers for review and we either go yes this is great or we're up in arms about it (laughs) and then we feedback our feedback to them and sometimes they change it 
and sometimes they don't. Yep. And then it comes out and we just have to run with it. Yep. And then we wait for that first exam to really know, did we run with it right? Yeah, yeah, right. And is there a variation between Phil? Because I can imagine, you know, there's not a lot of new algebra stuff coming out. Maybe, maybe, maybe there is, maybe there's not. But then in your field, or you, if you're in physics, you know, so all of a sudden things have completely shifted. Yeah. So there's sort of, you know, if you've got a group of maths t- teachers in the staff room just sort of laughing at you when the stuff comes out, <laughs> going, suck it up, bet, your weekend's gone. I mean, is, is that right? Yeah, that's okay. We give it to the maths teachers too. Exercise 4A, left-hand side. Yeah, it's be hard to plan that. Um, yeah, like it is. It's constantly changing. And I, I talk to my students a lot about this and sort of when I try to, you know, show them that science is always changing and that it's not static. Mm. And like 2007, I'm pretty sure it was 2007 on the VCE exam, there's a question about did Neanderthals and Homo sapiens interbreed? Oh, and right. the answer was no. Right. And now we know yeah, wow. that yeah. that's not the case. Like, Can we're all sitting back? here with Neanderthal Can, DNA in us. Yeah. Can a student go back and say, I, I just I had a feeling. <laughs> I want my marks back. I want to get into medicine at you know, this university. I, I, you know, outraged. They, get, they went into law yeah. instead. Yeah. I looked at the evidence myself. It just didn't seem to pan out. So I put yes. Yeah. So, yeah, like, so it's always changing, especially evolution. We're always finding yeah. new cousins, always. And we just sort of have to, you know, bring it into the classroom and say, but on your exam, this is the answer. However, this yeah. is where we're, you know, what we found out. And what do you do in terms of um, the, the, like, I always found there were certain elements of science where you could learn them in a certain, some of us would learn it in a certain way, but other students would need it in a very different way. I mean, how do you cater for that in the classroom? Oh, I try to sort of provide, I guess, a range of different activities. As you see on Twitter, I try to <laughs> make it as hands-on as I can and really just expose them in lots of different ways. So some students respond really well to video, mm. some uh, really, as far as an explanation, try and draw it. I always try and draw it. If you can draw it, you can understand it. Yeah. And so really just encourage students to sort of give everything a go and try different things and expose yourself as much as you can. Unfortunately, listening to me once is not going to be enough, no matter yeah. how amazing it's yeah, not enough. <laughs> You're about to say, no matter how amazing I am as a teacher. <laughs> I heard it. Uh, Chris? Just out of interest, some of, the, um, some of the most interesting parts of teaching science are, of course, teaching the, the technique, the approach of science, yep. the method. Do you find that students are comfortable enough challenging each other in terms of their conclusions or in terms of the work they've done? Because that, that is, again, you know, part of the, the, the system. Yeah. Interesting. When they mark their own work or other students' work, oh, they are... Vicious? Yes. Yeah. That was the word I was looking <laughs> Interesting. for. And you just go, oh, that's a bit harsh. Um, so, yeah, as far as sometimes they're okay with giving mm-hmm. critique and then other times, no. Interesting. Um, Very interesting. Yeah, but they love taking marks off each oh, of other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but again, getting students to work collaboratively, I really try to embrace that because... Yeah. Well, that's know, what science is. That's what science well, that's is. Yeah, that's and, what I asked. Yeah. Um, so I really focus on the team and actually got observed uh, about a month or so ago by new teachers that were had come to the school. And... Um, Hopefully my director of teaching and learning is not listening because the lab that I ordered and the lab I got were not the same. So I had to literally oh, wow. go, 
Make it up on the spot. Yeah. yeah. And so we're doing it and we're doing it as a group and it was a total love-in and I got this beautiful feedback saying, oh, it was like a family and everyone was supportive and it was like, oh, But yeah, again, working on that team, we're a team yeah. and particularly in IB because we work with the kids for the two years. Right. So really yes. creating yes. that. We're a team. And, and Beck, you spent quite a few years teaching um, students who are hearing impaired. Yes. How, how was that different in terms of the sciences? I mean, as you say, you're listening to you do there's one thing, but you have to have a very different approach, presumably, um, with hearing impaired yeah, students. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I, I'm loud enough. Though, yeah. Um, oh, right. they, yeah, no. <laughs> um, the students I worked with had cochlear implants and hearing oh, right. aids. Wow. Um, yeah. So out at Yarra Valley Grammar in their yep. hearing unit, do phenomenal work yeah. out there. And luckily... With science, again, hands-on, yep. hands-on. Um, but really for the hearing-impaired students, it's about getting that vocab across, particularly biology. It's a vocab science. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, I, I teach everyone. I've, I suppose I probably teach everyone like they are hearing-impaired, like yep. once a hearing-impaired teacher, always a hearing-impaired right, teacher. Right, That's interesting, yeah. And very clear instructions on the board. Everyone yep. knows what's Visuals, going on. Visuals, hands-on, tactile, the whole thing. Yeah, Absolutely. It's fabulous. Yep. Now, you've uh, you've recently just scored yourself a new job. You're now a professional learning coach. Yes. Does that mean like – is that like an Uber teacher? Oh, I don't know if it's an Uber teacher, uh, but a teacher that's working with teachers – passionate about helping teachers collaborate and be the best that they can and so that's sort of what my job will be next year working with the Glen Waverley staff and you'll still be teaching yourself yeah yeah so but you're helping them with how to teach essentially yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, that's wild stuff and how much of um how much of your job one of the things I want to get out there because I think people think you know you you roll up at what nine you leave at three You know, at the moment you're on holidays. Yeah. You're doing nothing. What I mean, what's it really like? What's the working week like for you? Uh, up at six, answering emails, um, trolling on – not trolling, I shouldn't say that's not right. Scrolling on Twitter. Scrolling on Twitter. I can vouch for that. Um, I, yeah, like I'll check Twitter. Um, there's amazing education network on Twitter. I yeah. mean, there's some – terrible things about twitter but there are some amazing things about twitter and teachers sharing stuff and 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 it'll be sometimes be like oh i can use that period three and i will post it to my team on teams and say i'm going to try this so i do that and then go in and teach and much to my son's um dismay i don't leave at 335 <laughs> and we have to stay back and i'll be might be working with students i usually work with students yep. after school tuesday and thursday usually he's got sport training then and then go home and keep marking preparing yeah. and ib we've got a new syllabus coming out for the group four subjects which are the sciences next year so the summer holidays will be spent Trying to work out yeah, what's what's preparing new. the curriculum. Yeah, geez, it's a it's a full on job. I, I I must say, I, you know, you know me on Twitter. I'm always trying to support the teachers as much as I want, but I think we really need to adjust the dial in terms of the respect that people yeah. in the community have for, for teachers across the board because it's a it's a low paid job that most of the fuels passion. Yeah, and you know, every now and then you'll hear people talk about you know the odd bad teacher, and yeah, it's like any profession. You mm-hmm. know, there's, yeah. there's there's some bad train drivers out there too. Let me yeah. tell you, you can tell by don't the derailments. Don't name names. Yeah, I'm not going to name. You know, but Bruce, if you're listening, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I think it's it's something that we we really do yeah. need to turn up the dial in terms of respect for teachers, yeah. especially at the moment when um, when education is so important across the board. So, Beck, thanks so much. For 
for coming in and chatting to us. And I, I, I look forward to seeing your uh, your tweets. For every, there's all these experiments. And because I didn't do biology, I looked at them and go, it looks great for the other one. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, it's great talking Thank to you. you. Uh, Rebecca Russell Saunders there, folks from uh, Wesley College, a science teacher there and soon to be the professional learning coach for other teachers as well. We are going to take a short break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, we're going to give you some news. So there you have it. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. We've got about uh, nine minutes left of Einstein and Gogo. We're going to throw some news at you. Uh, Dr. Sarah Best, what have you got for us? All right. I get to talk about my favorite pet animal today, so I'm very excited. <laughs> and you may be able to guess that that is the cat. Yeah. I, I knew. I'm not sure about anyone else, but I knew. Yeah. Anyone who knows me know that that's the truth. Yep. So cats are really interesting animals because they evolved in the desert, but then they co-evolved with humans. Mm-hmm. And so they never used to meow, but they meow to tell us what they want us to do. Right. And that's just a side story. That's a whole story in itself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but they also didn't um, evolve eating fish. And as any cat mm. owner will know, cats love tuna. Yeah, they do. Mm. They do. They go nuts over yep. it. And so this study that came out in Chemical Senses really wanted to understand what was in the taste buds of cats to really make them want tuna so badly. Mm. <laughs> Chris, Chris wants that because he loves tuna. Yeah. <laughs> I love cats. <laughs> Canned cats. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. so, um, so there are five different basic tastes. So you got your sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami, which mm-hmm. is the the strong savory flavor that's right. in a lot of meat. Yep. So a lot of carnivores have a strong umami taste bud interaction, and we we have it as humans, and we also really enjoy sweet food because we can sense sugar on our mm-hmm. taste buds. Yeah. But cats can't sense sugar at all, right? And they sure. also can't really sense bitter as well. So. Their taste bud receptors are quite different to humans. You might be surprised to know, given what cats eat versus what we eat. And so this study investigated the proteins in taste buds that respond to the umami flavor. Mm -hmm. And they were the first to discover that cats do indeed have the complement of these proteins so that they can detect umami. But there were a few mutations in the cat version compared to the human version. And this meant that they sense the, um, the food metabolites in a different way to humans. And they're also exquisitely sensitive to two different food metabolites, histidine and inosine monophosphate, which are very high in tuna. Right. Mm. And so they're really, really loving these yeah. flavours. Yeah. And so now we can kind of call these like food additives to uh, <laughs> to make something taste like tuna or really like kick those taste So just buds. sprinkle a strawberry with these things and yeah. it will yeah. go crazy over strawberries exactly. all of a sudden. Exactly. Wow. So, so the group did a, a little trial of 25 cats yep. and they had some water bowls and some of the water bowls had different um, food metabolite flavorings in them and some of them had this histine and inosine monophosphate mm. and the cats loved the histidine yep. and inosine monophosphate, which is really exciting because I don't know if you've ever tried to give a cat medicine. Yeah, yeah not great. <laughs> yeah, no, you not crush good. it up in their food and they manage to just lick around yes, it. Yes, or you yep. try and give them a pill and they just spit it back up. Yep. So if we can start really harnessing these food flavorings for yes. cats, yeah. 
we can really improve a bit of their their cat welfare, which yeah. is really exciting nice. to me. That's interesting. I like it. I like I, I like the, you know knowing why they're so obsessive about those things. I mean, the other, the other thing they should uh, look at next is why they seem to be morally offended by citrus. Oh, yes. yeah. How yeah. dare you? How oh, dare if you? If I open up, because uh, I'm a big tangelo eater, <laughs> open one of those up, my cats look at me like I've just stabbed them in the heart, <laughs> and then they run off. I'm like, what is your problem with citrus? Yeah, I like the judgment of a cat. <laughs> yeah. not, not, I don't like it. It's your, yeah. You're lesser to me now. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, but in, we always yeah. were. We well, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, I have cats because of Sarah Best. Oh, really? Yeah, she shamed me into it a few years back and made me go and get it, you know, essentially bullied me into getting a, oh. a test to see if I was actually allergic to cats and actually I was allergic to dust mites not Fair cats enough. so then I had to get a cat because of Sarah I had to get rid of your dust mite pets yeah mm. <laughs> <laughs> or the <other> kids mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know. uh, Chris KP what do you got uh, I've got a, a nifty little story here uh, about so okay it's about footprints fossil footprints uh, and that's just there's something immediately satisfying about that because it's so personal if you see a footprints a human being like you was yeah, there yeah, yeah. at some point so in in uh south africa and we're talking uh going back 70 to 130,000 years ago so a fair while ago they found footprints in in the stone obviously uh and some of them are walking some of them are jogging uh, and they're quite clearly human footprints except for the ones that don't have toes uh, they appear to be, apart from that, very much the same. Like the same sort of gait, the same sort of size, the same kind of separation, the same kind of place. They just haven't got toes. And it wasn't just someone who had a bad day. Could have been. <laughs> you know, could have been. And this I just is, think of the Apatosaurus well, and the Brontosaurus, you know. <laughs> Chomp. Um, so this is, this is the interesting area of science because, of course, you look at them and you go, well, they look like footprints except for toes. Maybe they had no toes, which seems possible but very unlikely. So the researchers... Went with, rather than that, they went with the idea that these people were wearing shoes because then everything else is the same except for the, the detailed nature of the foot. But what sort of shoes might they have been wearing? Uh, and there's two ways you look at this, well, two ways they looked at it. One was they looked at rock art where there are actually shoes depicted. Oh, in the art? Yes. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, yeah. But also, because you've got to date the art then, you've got to do the comparisons and all that stuff. Um, but then they actually made shoes themselves yeah, as in using more primitive technologies of a variety of types, and then went running. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah and reproduce. Went, yeah, and went okay. That footprints. looks a bit like it is. And yeah. so, based on their own study of their own homemade crafted shoes, which I suspect they crafted with rather less skill than the people mm. who were actually making them 130,000 years ago, because they had to. Um, but you know, with that, comparing that to rock art and just the actual shape of these prints, they reckon that they were wearing hard-sided sandals. Interesting. Yeah, they were in Crocs, um, <laughs> which is why they're all extinct now. Um, I have to yeah. assume. So, but yeah, how well, nifty is that? That yeah, someone's yeah, gone, yeah. that's weird, but it's probably a human. Yeah. But let's make some homemade shoes to find out. Yeah. Either that or there was another branch of evolution for uh, 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 upright species that had no toes. Quite possibly, yeah, they disappeared. Yeah, yeah quite they possibly. Because they didn't have the toes. Hey, look, just a little bit of a tidbit for you. The study of uh, fossil prints is ichnology. Ichnology. Uh, ichnology. Not to, be, not to be confused with ichthyology, which is mm. the study of yep. fish. Um, so if you've got fish with footprints, that would presumably be ichthyo-ichnology. Interesting. That's something for your Sunday afternoon. Ichnology. Ichnology. I, no- I acknowledge. <laughs> Thank That's you. Term. Thank you, Chris KP. <laughs> uh, it's been a big show for us here with some great guests today, uh, folks. And uh, Sarah Best, thanks so much for 
being on the show with us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. Uh, Chris KP, always good to see you. Likewise, always good to be here. Uh, Felicia's been doing our Twitter feed. If you haven't caught up on that, folks, uh, we have two Twitter extras now, uh, Felicia <laughs> and, and Liv. <laughs> Liv's been doing our Twitter feed forever. Uh, Felicia's has come on board to help out as well, so we thank her. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again next week. Until then, I'm going to leave you with the amazing team from Eat It. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.